Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Tom Rain here from Tom's Big Spiders. We're recording this one a day late because, as some of you know, because I believe there are some pictures posted up on Facebook, uh, Billy and I took kind of an impromptu trip to New York City, which is uh, an incredibly out of character for us, or more so for me. I don't get out much. I know I've alluded to this before, but I don't. I have a hard time sitting in a car or sitting still for long periods of time, and I honestly hate car drives. So we don't go much, but uh, it ended up that Tanya and Dr. Linda Rayer, who is an entomologist and senior lecturer and research associate at Cornell University, were meeting up in New York, and I had some spiders I wanted to pick up from Tanya and figured, what the heck, let's escape. We never go anywhere. So we went out and hung out with them for the day. It was a lot of fun. Um, it was a lot of spider talk. It was interesting sitting in uh, – we went to this place that was basically to eat that was in the – it was like the basement of a Target. Now, hopefully people from New York City are probably going, oh, I know where that is. For me, being a country boy, you know, I don't see a lot of this stuff, but it was basically a big building. It went down an escalator, and it was like a food court in the basement, and we're sitting there talking about huntsman spiders. We might have had some huntsman spiders with us, so it was, you know, just good time spider talk, and Dr. Rayer does a lot with uh, communal spiders. She's fascinated by the fact that some of these guys seem to adapt to living in close quarters with each other. Has done some research on that, which of course I am incredibly interested in. So what we're looking at doing at some point is an interview with her either via video. She wants us to come up to her lab, which is in New York. And unfortunately, it's about a five and a half hour drive. So we're trying to trying to pump myself up for this somehow. I don't think, honestly, I could sit in a car for five and a half hours. We just did. It was three from where we live in Plainfield to New York City, and I felt like I dealt with it pretty well, and I don't like driving in cities, and we did the driving in the city, so I was feeling pretty good about it, but I think I, I think that's probably my threshold right now. It's not so much to drive there. It's one of those deals where you're driving to a place, and you're all excited to get there. It's that drive home. I just want to teleport and be home immediately, but anyway, we had a great time, and again, obviously, you know, I get a lot of people that, it's funny, I'll get emails that'll ask me questions like, hey, do you know if Fear Not's getting this in, or Fear Not's getting that in, and, and just full disclosure, you know, I count Tanya Stewart as a friend of mine. And it started for me buying from her. The service I got was absolutely amazing. But over the years, we've actually become friends. She knows Billy. I mean, all of us have hung out before. So just full disclosure, it's I do think she runs an amazing business. I know her as a person, not just the business lady that heads that company. And she's an amazing person. So I just throw that out there because I know there's people that want to find little conspiracy theories like, oh, Tom recommends them because they're friends. No, Tom recommends them because he bought from them anonymously before in the past and they treated him amazingly. And Tom has recommended a lot of people to him who email him and tell him, I just had an amazing experience with Fear Not Tarantulas. So it's it's very easy to recommend somebody you're friends with when they do a great job. So anyway, that was awesome. I wish I had taken some video of it, but quite frankly, I was completely overwhelmed wandering around New York City. That's something brand new for me. I mean, I, I, hopefully I blended in well enough, but it was just amazing. And I have to say, I'm normally not a city person. I you know grew up on you know rural place. We had a, a farm, but it wasn't like farm country, so to speak. My dad was a little weird and wanted to be a farmer, so we bought a bunch of acreage in a town and had like a farm with goats and chickens and sheep and rabbits and all kinds of stuff. But I'm not usually used to cities. They kind of depress me only because it's like when we have people from the city move into the country and the first thing they explain about is there's no noise. They can't deal with it. For me, I like the no noise. Or I just like hearing animals, quite frankly, you know, birds, little squirrels fighting, whatever it may be. But I have to say it was really, it was amazing. I really enjoyed it. And Billy and I were already talking about going back and maybe wandering around one of these days. But 
Anyway, that's where I was on Saturday, so unfortunately I didn't get the podcast done, so here we are on Sunday, feeling a little crunch for time. Usually I like having a buffer of a day to sit back, and I, I sometimes go back and play these through to make sure I didn't say anything stupid in them, and so far so good, but... Here we are. So this one, this time around, we're going to be talking about breeding. And again, I've actually been very reluctant to cover this, even though it's probably been one of the most recommended topics people have wanted to hear about. And this is why. And and this isn't directed toward anybody listening. I figure anybody that will listen to me talk about spiders for 50 minutes is probably pretty bright and does research. I mean, you have to really like spiders and hearing about them to listen to somebody talk about them for 50 minutes. So uh, this isn't, I don't want any of this to sound like I'm coming down on people, but one of the things I've discovered since starting Tom's Big Spiders is there are some people out there that either because they don't know how to do research or they don't like research, they just don't want to do any research. And I, I pointed before about how I will do like a beginner species video. It happened again this week where I tried to parade out all the beginner species. This is not the new one I'm working on. This is my old one, where I paraded out all the species I had that I thought made good beginner species and explained what was good about them, what was bad about them. And again, today, I had somebody come on and go, hey, great video. Could you tell me, is a GBB a good beginner species? And it's like, for crying out loud, it's like, right, if you watch the video, skip through it. I've done that before. You just kind of slide around like, oh, what's the next one? I, I get that people don't want to hear me talk all that time. I mean, it's, it's a long video of me talking through the whole thing and pulling out different spiders. Totally understand it, but then skip around. Don't just, you know, it's, it's if you're going to own these animals, and I think this is one of the biggest issues I've had you know, that I found within the hobby. And it, and it's kind of a bigger, it's a bigger issue through society as a whole nowadays. Everybody, will you have all this information, like right at your fingertips, everybody wants the answer now quickly and without any having to do any work for it. So it's like, how many times do you just, you have a question now and you go, oh, let's Google it. And you Google it. And within two seconds, you have an answer. And back in the day, for those of us who are old enough to remember a time where we didn't have, you know, little computers in our pocket all the time. And I feel like I'm dating myself now. Not that old yet, but I do remember when I didn't have a cell phone. And you'd be like trying to remember an actor or an actress in a movie, for example. You'd be like, oh my gosh, it's on the tip of my tongue. You didn't know what to do with it. You didn't, you weren't able to just hop on your phone, go on IMDb and pull it up. So I think we've gotten spoiled in that regard that somebody out there has already done the research for us and can dilute it to one little sentence. You go to Google, they'll tell you right off the bat. That, you know, in one sentence. Now, is it correct? That's the problem. Just because it's the most popular and the first thing that pops up doesn't mean it's correct. So I think a lot of folks lack those critical thinking skills as far as, but they just haven't been taught and they haven't needed them. And, and I get that because, again, I work in a school where I'm trying to teach kids how to develop these skills, how to, when you're looking for something for a report, you don't just take the first thing that pops up that is most of us recognize is obviously wrong. You have to do some research. So I do feel that this is a problem in the hobby. It's a problem in general with people. I mean, if you look at what goes on in the news, people will look at one news agency over another because it gives them the opinion that they want to hear. And a lot of people don't take the time to dig and see that, you know, both sides might have you know, some sketchy, sketchy information, and you kind of got to dig down and find what the grain of truth is within it all. So I do find that to be an issue sometimes. And then when talking about breeding, there's no short term, quick, you know, way to cover breeding because it, it differs from species to species. They have different periods where it takes them to lay the sack. They have different periods that you have to, you know, before you want to pull the sack. And I don't want to have a situation where somebody goes and pulls this up, you know, they're online go, oh, good, a whole podcast is going to tell me exactly how to breed every single species. No, I'm going to tell you right now, this is going to kind of be an overview drawing on some of my experiences for them, which isn't 
it's not particularly extensive. I've bred several times. I've gotten a few sacks. It's great, but there are people out there that know a heck of a lot more about this and have a lot more experience, and they can literally tell you all the differences between the different species because they've had so much experience with it. However, having done breeding, having found it to be incredibly exciting and something that, you know, I, I when I produced my first sack of spiderlings or at that point it was eggs with legs that was a huge moment of pride for me because it was like wow this is the next step in the hobby i've actually i've created these things now i'm not just going out and buying them all i've actually created or helped create some obviously the spiders did all the work but i paired them up so i get why people want to breed it's just this is my warning ahead of time before we get into this take what i do here figure out which species you want to breed hop on the internet and do some research this is not going to get you all the way from A to Z as far as breeding with every single species. Again, I'm going to give you some tips of things I've had, some things to look out for, some things that, uh, you know, that I screwed up on when I bred my first ones or didn't realize. And hopefully it'll, it'll be a little springboard for people, but this is not like the ultimate, you know, I did my ultimate sling guide, which I felt like I covered just about every aspect of keeping slings as I could think of. And I was very proud that I was able to thoroughly go through that. This isn't the ultimate sling guide. This is an introduction to breeding with some tips and some things that I have figured out along the way that hopefully will help people. So I do want to get that out of the way. And again, I don't mean this to be negative because I get it. And I've done it where you're sitting there. I'm looking at a new species. I flip on a uh, Google. I, I look it up and I read a couple things. All right, I got a pretty good idea of this. But then again, I have a lot of experience keeping these guys and knowing the different ways to keep them so it's a little easier for me but sometimes I think people just go on like somebody the other day just went I I watched your beginner species video I have some questions and they basically just systematically asked me all the stuff that was covered in that video so like just a little more effort sometimes would be appreciated. So anyway, that's not you guys. I don't want anybody out there thinking, man, he's going to, honestly, I have to say, this is probably the most educated group of people I interact with as far as you guys know your stuff. You, you like hearing about them. You like, you know, obviously if you're going to listen to me for 45, 50 minutes going on and on and on about them, you're obviously serious about it. And I, I totally appreciate, appreciate that. And as I've mentioned before, the YouTube videos are probably, you get a lot of people that are just, Hey, spiders are cool. Let's see what they got. Oh, let's check out what this Tom's Big Spiders guy's got. Oh, nope, don't feel like watching this. Let me shoot him a message. He seems to be responsive. And then that's where we get to, you know, the point where I'm trying to basically put down, all right, well, if you go to this point in the video, you'll see I answer that question. And if you go to this point in the video, you'll see I answer that question. I do it politely and I don't I don't get mad. I'm not snarky about it. I, I get it. And again, I work with a lot of kids that will do the same thing. Just like give me the information. But it it does sometimes get frustrating because I spend so much time so much time on these videos trying to get all that information in there to avoid this. So anyway, breeding. So you want to breed spiders? First thing you're going to need is a male and a female. No, I'm just kidding. But one thing, what first part of it is figuring out what you want to breed. And I've alluded to this in another podcast where I was talking about for people who are interested in breeding some things you want to think about. This is a big commitment, a big time commitment. And I've had people tell me, yeah, I've got, you know, 25 spiders and it's it's really kind of a lot keeping up with them. I want to breed. Well, guess what? Your 25 spiders is quickly going to be upwards of, you know, 125 to even 1,025, 2,025, depending on the species. If you do an L pair high band, I know a lot of folks 
are interested in breeding the LP, Lazyodora parahibana, or Salmon Bird Eater, they can have upwards of 2,000 babies. So imagine you have 25 and you're finding it a little overwhelming to keep up with them and you kind of freak out when your slings bury themselves or don't eat. Now you're responsible for 2,000, even 1,000, even 500. And I will tell you, I had the first sack, and I'll be alluding to this uh, quite a bit, the Hopalopus species Columbia at large I had. I was expecting to get like 60 to 90, and we ended up closer to 400. And there was a moment where I was overwhelmed. I already had several hundred animals, scorpions and assassin bugs and tarantulas and now all of a sudden that just tripled it was it, it was tough at first to kind of adjust to oh my gosh this is gonna be a lot more work and luckily it was during the summer where I was on summer break and I had a lot of extra time but even then it was it was pretty intensive so one thing you need to think about before you start breeding do you know what you're going to do with the slings you breed I've talked to many people that are gung-ho about it and then I inevitably get and this has happened a few times now hey Tom so I have all these slings do you want any of these do you know people that want them. And it's like, that's something you kind of want to figure out beforehand. So before you breed, find out, do your research, hop in, what's uh, hop in right away. What size egg sac can I expect? How many slings do they usually produce? Figure out if it's a species people want. And, you know, again, we don't want to discourage anybody from breeding anything. We can move anything, honestly. But if you got 2000 baby LPs, that's going to take some some trickery kind of to get those moved off. You're not going to want to sell 2,000 slings yourself. I can tell you right now with how much FedEx charges, especially if you don't have you know, any discounts for volume, you're going to be spending a lot of money shipping. Or you're going to be telling people, yeah, I'll, I'll sell you these LPs. You can have them for $10 each, but it's going to cost you $95, $110 to ship them across to California from Connecticut. And that's no joke. The prices are ridiculously high. And so it comes down to before you start, First thing you do, write on your notepad when you're taking notes, what species do I want to breed? And then look and see what is the availability of it. If you want, shoot some things out. I mean, some people might not answer because I'm sure they get these a lot, but talk to some vendors. Say, hey, I'm interested in breeding these. Would this be a species that you're interested in carrying? Would you be you know, interested in buying them wholesale? And don't go into this. If you're thinking about breeding, don't go into it like, man, I'm going to make so much money. Don't look at it that way. Trust me. It'll, it'll just cause more stress because what will end up happening is you'll get a situation where somebody will go, hey, you know what? I'll give you a dollar each for those slings. And you're thinking, well, heck no. I just went on this site and they're selling for $15. Well, keep in mind, if you're doing wholesale, you're going to get less for them. And a lot of times, if they're going to take huge batches off of you, they're probably going to sell some and use some for freebies, which is great. It gets them off your hands. You get a little bit of money from it and everybody's happy. But if you start like getting to like, oh no, I've seen them online. They're 15 bucks. So I want 12 bucks each. Then you're going to be left sitting on a lot of spiders. It's something to think about. You're not in a great place to bargain in some situations if you don't already have those, you know, pathways established to breeders that are dealers that are going to buy your stock. So that's something incredibly important to think of before you even start. So shoot some things out. Ask questions. I've had people ask me before, hey, Tom, what do you think about this species? And I'll say, all right, right off the bat, you're looking at 600 to 1,000 slings. However, this is a species that you're not able to find right now. Um, Acanthoscuria geniculata, we were just talking about this yesterday when we're hanging out is one that you're not going to see as much anymore because they can't import them in. So they went from being everywhere to now because of the whole Brazilian debacle, you're not able to import them in. So we need to start breeding those. So if anybody listening has those, please breed them and then send me one. No, I'm just kidding. I'll be happy to buy one because I don't have one right now. And that would be a species that you want to breed. Um, sadly, uh, 
P. Muranus, the OBT, those used to be everywhere because they're apparently fairly easy to breed. You're not seeing them as much anymore. Those might be something to breed as well. But the trick is to find something that's going to be easy to start with and that you're going to be able to move because you do not want to be left with hundreds of spiderlings that you have to care for because anybody that's kept a couple spiderlings knows if you're taking care of them right, you got to check on them more often than you do their juvenile and adult counterparts. And to do that with 300, 400, I will tell you the 400, those Hapalopa species, Columbia larges, I think my hairline suffered a great deal because of those, because of the stress of, oh my gosh, I have to pull them all out and go through them all again. And that, I'll tell you, it adds a lot of time to taking care of your spiders. And then what will end up happening is you're not spending as much time with your actual collection. It can take away some of the enjoyment of the hobby. Just throwing things out there people need to be aware of before they make this jump. Again, I get the allure. I totally get it. I went in pretty much recognizing that this was going to be a problem. And it's still, there was a point where I turned to Billy. I'm like, I don't know how many times we're going to end up doing this. And again, I have a larger collection. So I'm already dealing with close to 200 spiders at any given day. The added hundreds of babies was a little bit much. So do, before you even start, do some research ahead of time. Make yourself a little checklist. Which species do I want to breed? How much of the male is going to cost? Do I want to buy the male outright or do I want to do a breeding loan? I will tell you I'm not, and this is going to sound terrible because I know this is an established situation where you do the 50-50 where they send you the male. You pair them, you break up the slings, and then you send them 50% of the slings. I'll tell you, for me, it wouldn't have been worth it for the Hapalobas, although I ended up giving a bunch of them to her anyway. We we had a great situation. The uh, woman, Brandy, that I work with, unfortunately, has passed away. Um, We had been talking for a while, so it was a good situation. She only wanted a couple. I was actually talking her into taking more. But know that that 50-50, that's going to be a lot of work where somebody packs up a mail, sends it to you, and they just sit and wait. And the, the risk for them, it's kind of like a gamble for them because a lot of times you send off the mail, you don't get anything. And then they just sent off their spider, probably paid for shipping and didn't get anything in return. So I get it. For me, it's just the amount of work it took. It would be like, all right, now I'm giving half of these away after I've done all the hard stuff. And plus the fact I don't want to be like feel bad if the breeding doesn't go well. So if I take somebody's mail and we don't get anything out of it, I'm going to feel terrible. If the mail gets munched and we don't get anything out of it, I'm going to feel terrible like they just wasted their money. So I would rather, personally, I buy mails outright. And I've, I've said this before. I've had people try to do breeding loans. And I have some, some buddies of mine that I know really well that we do breeding loans with. And that's totally something different. But as far as like, for me, when I'm breeding, I would rather just purchase the mail, be able to do things on my time and not have to report back and not have to do the whole, all right, I've just spent all these weeks doing all this work. We've got the sack. I've taken care of it. Now let's split it up. And I just don't need to bother with it. So again, I get why people do it. I get that it can work great for both people. It's just personally speaking, I'd rather just buy the mail. But that's something you need to think about. You need to think about how available they are. Are there going to be shoot some emails out, talk to people, find out, is this a species I'm going to be able to move? Because you're going to want to move those rather quickly because the bigger they get, sometimes the harder they are to move. I will tell people right now, unless you're planning on doing this for like a side business, you do not want to be the one shipping all these babies out. I have people go, oh yeah, no problem. I'm just going to make a website and throw them up on the website and and sell them from there. Here's the deal. People buy from larger dealers because uh, the cost of shipping is quite high and you want to get more for your money with the shipping. So if uh, I'm looking for tarantulas and I find somebody selling them for $20 and I'm like, oh, this is a great price, but their shipping is going to be 95 bucks. That's that's not going to work. That's too uh, cost prohibitive. 
However, if I go over and see somebody's charging $60 for shipping and they have a bunch of other species, that's going to be more enticing to me. So that's something to keep in mind that you're probably not going to want to go the route of selling them all yourselves. Although I'm sure people out there have done it and I'm not trying to dissuade. It's just, again, a lot of work. You get home from work, you're feeding all your slings, you've sold 20 of them online overnight. Now you have to pack them all up, label them, bring them to FedEx. It's a tough endeavor. It's not something that you can just easily do. It's it's exhausting. So just things to think about before you start. So you found your male, you found your female. The actual pairing itself is can be... <laughs> It's always fascinating, but you need to make sure you set yourself some time aside for it because some species take longer than others. So, for example, for my Hapalopus species, Columbia Large, for the two times I paired with the males that I had, they the males kind of enticed the females out. And then they did this kind of walkabout where the female, the male would tap the female, the female would move forward to the male, the male would back up, and they just kept backing up all around the enclosure. They were outside the enclosures. They were in the box that I put the enclosures in to keep them from escaping, back into the enclosures. This went on for quite some time. Some of these species, can the mating rituals can last hours. So when you breed, you want a time that it's going to be quiet. You want a time where there's not going to be people moving around and opening doors and slamming doors. I mean, I will tell you around this house, that can be very difficult, but it's usually like on a Sunday when the kids are out playing video games and Billy and I are just sitting down here. We take them, we put them on the table and we do the breeding down here. So make sure you have a good place for it and pick a good time and make sure you're not doing it during a time where people are going to come in and out of the house. You know, little Jan's got soccer practice first thing in the morning, then she's going to come back with her friends and they're going to kind of tear up the house. You want to make sure you have peace and quiet because you're going to want to be focused and attentive during the actual breeding process, ready to roll, and you don't need the extra distractions for yourself. So even if the spiders have no idea what's going on around you, you're going to, and you don't want those kind of distractions. And I have tried before to breed when there were distractions, and I ended up putting the kibosh on it. I looked at Billy, and I was like, you know what, we're done. Turn the cameras off. We'll do this another time because it's just not conducive to it. So make sure you have a good time with it. Now, one thing that I that drives me nuts is when people are spending too much time mugging for the camera and recording and, you know, not properly supervising the pairing. They don't always, I've heard people go, well, you know, they eat the males. That's what happens. Well, no, what I'm starting to realize is most of the males know there's a good chance of them getting eaten and they're, they've got one foot on the, like ready to run at all times. I've noticed this with several species that they're like, they're expecting it and they're trying to get out of there. And I got a funny feeling in the wild where there's a lot more open space, the males can probably more successfully navigate their way out of the coupling without getting eaten. In most instances, obviously a big female that's intent on eating the male, what they do is as the insertion is being made, the females just curl over and grab the male. So there's really no shot for it to leave. And that's where you come in. So I'll explain that in a moment. But I I have a very difficult time with people that are just like, yep, you got munch, that happens. You can prevent it in most instances. Now, I've had males get munch with the two Hapalopus species, one of them completely 100% my fault, I believe, when I went to put the male in the female's enclosure. He started to come out of the catch cup I was using, and then she backed him into the catch cup. I was afraid to remove the catch cup without startling him and having him run into her and get munched. So I left it there. They ended up going into the catch cup to pair, and there was nowhere for him to go. That was my fault. He got munched there. The second time, he got insertion as he was – I was sitting right there with the paintbrush. As he was getting insertion, she bent him right over and ate him. It was literally like insertion at the same time she ate him. So you can't always save them, but I do see a lot of videos online – 
where the male definitely could have been saved. And because people were, you know, adjusting cameras or just not even bothering to try to intervene, they get munched. And that's just a waste of mail, especially if it doesn't take the first time. You keep that mail healthy, you try it again later. I've done it before where, oh, all right, we didn't get this time. You're going to bring the mail out later on. So please be prepared to intervene. What I like to do is I loop the female's legs. I get it right under her pedipalps and so she's if she's going to try to come down and grab the mail she's going to end up caught on my paintbrush and I keep that in there at an angle now again you got to be careful because they can bolt they can go right up that paintbrush if you're not careful but the trick is to keep her from being able to fold them over and get those fangs in and I've had pretty good luck with this we recently molted my uh, bee caboclas and the female was it looked like she was going for him and we were able to hold him back or I'll hold her back. So that's something to think about that when you're doing it, you have to be comfortable around your spiders. And that's another thing that I think some people don't consider is the fact that if you still have that fear of a bolting spider, know that the males sometimes boogie right afterwards. And I mean, they go, they jet, they get the heck out of there and they end up on your dinner table, on the floor, on a wall. That's something to be careful with to know that the male might bolt your best bet is to do this in an area where there's a lot of room so you just assume the male is going to bolt and you cup them later on because he will stop they'll bolt a few feet at most usually and then they kind of freeze up and that's your best spot to cup them cup them don't try to stop him in the cage don't put your hand in the way sometimes when people get bit it's when they kind of get in between the two of them and the male goes up their arm or the female goes after the male and your hands in the way keep your hands away use a paper a long paintbrush to keep the female from crunching down on them but let the male kind of boogie and then cup him once he calms down. Now, a couple tricks that people are things that people will mention when breeding to try. Sometimes you'll get a situation where the male isn't really into the female. I try to keep the male's enclosure right next to the female. I'm assuming there's pheromones that tell them, hey, this is a lady, hey, this is a dude, and kind of, you know, encourages that coupling. So I kind of put the cages next to each other, and I have noticed that you'll see them tapping next to each other sometimes, which is great because then by the time you pull the tops off, they're ready to go. Some people choose to use a technique, I believe it's called like a shark cage or shark caging, where you take the male, you put them in a smaller enclosure, lock it, and then put that enclosure in the female's enclosure, and that's supposed to allow them to kind of be in close proximity with each other, kind of get those pheromones going, and make create a situation where they're both uh, receptive to mating without jeopardizing the male by leaving him in overnight or whatever. So that's something that I haven't done it. I haven't used it, but I've heard people say it can work very well in those situations. I've heard some breeders say it's ridiculous. I've never used it. You don't need it. I've heard other breeders say I've had great luck with it. So find out if it's something that works for you. Personally, I don't see how it can hurt. If they're in there in close proximity, they will. They'll tap. Those pheromones will get out. It'll kind of get them both jazzed up and ready to go. But again, I haven't used it myself. So if you look it up, and you can find lots of examples online or on YouTube of people using the shark caging i believe it's called and if that's something that works for you great i've found that if you keep them next to each other they usually go and i've also had situations where the first time i go to introduce them the male isn't interested but the second time i introduce them the male is very interested so be prepared to try multiple times and again before you start one good thing that you can do or one you know being prudent go ahead look up those reports breeding reports read about the mating rituals find out if there's anything weird like the hapalopa species columbia large i had heard about the wandering behavior before i started but i didn't remember it until we actually got into it i was like oh that's right they wander all around other species have their own mating rituals. What I try to do also is look them up on YouTube and try to find videos of people pairing them on YouTube so I can see what to expect. I know with my B. caboclas, there was a video where the male basically pinned the female down upside down like they flipped over and he ended up on top of her while he got penetration. It was it was a very violent 
act overall, but I think the male was trying to get her pinned down so he could get in search and get out of the way. And so I could expect that when almost the exact same thing happened with my guys. So that's something you can do in advance. Do your research, watch some videos, get an idea of how they're going to move, what to look for. Because the other thing that happens is sometimes they look like they're going for insertion, but it's not. The males are tapping on the underside of them, but they don't have insertion yet. And I've seen situations and videos where people have pulled the spiders apart thinking, oh, he's done. And the guy never got insertion. He was still kind of I don't want to use the, it was eight play. Let's put it that way. He was getting her riled up and ready to go. So make sure you know what to expect before you go into it. Give yourself time and don't be afraid if it doesn't look like it's going well to pack it up and try again later on. Now, one of the questions I usually get about breeding, can I just drop the male in and leave them overnight? Well, if you want a dead male, yes, that's probably the way to go. And that's not to say it doesn't work out. I've heard many instances of people dropping males in with the females in larger enclosures and they do their thing and the male goes away and sits at the opposite end of the enclosure and they're fine. It's just not It's not a great way to go about it, in my opinion. It's better to watch what's going on. Now, for some species like Pisolotheria, I did used to pair, like I tried to pair my female Regalis, and unfortunately she molted and the male passed away right after that. I put those two in together. They were fine. With some species, again, do your research, but with some species you'll find you can put the male in with the female, and if you put them in a bigger enclosure, if they do their meeting, the male will run and they'll stay away from each other. So, for example, with the Regalis, I had a huge Tupperware. I mean, the thing had to be three feet by two feet by maybe two and a half feet high, three feet high, that I was able to drop both of their Sterilite enclosures in, took the tops off their Sterilite enclosures, and let them come out on their own. What happened is they both came out in this bigger enclosure. They made their way toward each other, tap, 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 did their thing. And then they split off in other directions and they were perfectly fine. He was in there with her at one point for a week and I had no problems. But normally I do not drop the male right in with the female and leave them there. That's, uh, you uh, again, some species it'll work. You, the problem with it is, A, you can end up with a dead male. B, you never know if they got mated or not. And that's a big issue. I've heard people, you know, they put the male in. Well, the male's dead. I hope the female and them made it. And then the female molts and they don't get a sack and they never know what happens. So you want to kind of observe it. So I'm not a huge proponent of just dropping the male in with the female and leaving them there. Can it work? Yes, it can. Is it the best way to do it? Well, if you can be there to supervise, I would say no, that's not the route you want to go. You want to be there to actually supervise, hopefully save the male, and hopefully witness the actual pairing and the insertion. Now, I get a lot of questions about when a female is ready to breed. And it again, it depends on the species. This is where your research comes in. I can't go through all of them here. But know that I, I do hear of a lot of folks that... Uh, I think try to breed theirs very early on. I think a lot of guys get very, or people, keepers get very excited about the prospect of breeding and they're like, oh, I have a, a four inch B hammer eye. Can I breed this one now? Well, no. You technically, in most cases, want a female that's, you know, sexually mature, larger than the male. If you're breeding a male that's bigger than the female, you're probably doing it too soon. If you breed a female early, you may get a sack. It's not going to be as large of a sack or they end up, you know, not producing a sack at all. So you really want to look before you breed to figure out, is my female large enough to breed to begin with? And that's an important place to start. Also, another thing is people will ask, when, how much do I feed her before I try breeding her after a molt? Because what will happen is you want the female to be well-fed enough that she's not immediately going to see the male as lunch, but you don't want her fed too much and fattened up too much that she gets bread, eats a bunch more, and then it goes immediately into pre-molt. And I've done this. I have my P. regalis, I was trying to get her fattened up for breeding for the male, and unfortunately, I got 
got her too fattened up. She mated with the male, and then two months later, she molted out, and that was it. So it's important to recognize there's a happy medium there where you want them. You know, I would, I personally, after the female molts, want to fatten her up quite a bit before putting the male in there to reduce the chances that she eats him, and to make sure you know she's got a little base there. She's got a little you know fat stored up. Hopefully, that'll help in creating that egg sac. Now, after the actual pairing itself, what you want to look for is some of the females will, like for my Hapalova species, Columbia Large, she immediately burrowed, webbed up the burrow. So right off the bat, I'm like, all right, this is different behavior for her. This is a good sign. For other ones, they're going to be voracious eaters. And actually, my Hapalova species, Columbia Large, was still eating, but she had buried herself down and kind of webbed it up. She was a little more secretive. But they're going to, obviously, they're going to be carrying a bunch of babies. They need the resources to create that, those babies, that sack. So you're going to want to keep them very well fed. Usually during this time, like mine that are hopefully gravid right now, I've been feeding like twice a week and try to fatten them up. Because again, you got to give them those resources and they have, you know, usually there's a certain amount of time they're going to fatten up. And you will, if the female is gravid, you're going to expect her to put on some size. If you look up pictures of, you know, spiders that have been bred and they're ready to make a sack, they are quite plump in most instances. So that's, that's something you can look for. And again, the big letdown, the big thing that we hope doesn't happen during this time period, which is, you know, I think you can control a bit, but is the fact that if they molt out, that basically that sperm is put in there. And if they molt out during that period, you don't have a sack. I did have somebody email me like, hey, I got my, my female's bread. She's molted. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, that's, you're not going to get any babies from that. If they molt during that process, that's it. You have to start over again. That's when you want to fatten them up quickly. Hope that male hangs around for a little while longer and try pairing them again. Now, as far as the times it takes them to make a from the point of actually getting, you know, having the pairing getting the insertion to making the actual sack that can differ from species to species so again that's when your homework is going to come in that's something you do want to look up if you go to arachnoboards arachnoboards has a beautiful section of basically information about different successful pairings or pairings of spiders you can do breeding i believe it's called breeding reports makes sense and if you go to the breeding reports page You'll find all kinds of species-specific information of people that tried to pair from the date they paired, from the date that they saw the sack, to the date that they got the slings. Those are amazingly helpful when you're trying to pair and get a sack because you'll know exactly what to look for as far as dates. You'll know what's normal. You know what's not normal. You know, I had situations where you're like, oh gosh, I, I, I don't think, you know, I thought this one would have had a sack already. But if you read on the reports, you might find that it takes them a little longer to produce one. So that's something I would recommend anybody looking to breed. Find out which one you want to breed. Go over to Arachnoboards, look up the breeding reports, see what they have for it. Now, for most species, you're looking four to six weeks after the mating for them to actually produce the sack sacks the sack with the eggs and usually what the females will do is they'll keep the sack with them kind of scrunch up over it and they will do a lot of the work the eggs you can't just leave the sack sitting someplace because it'll settle and the bottom eggs will get destroyed and if the eggs start rotting it can spread to other eggs what they do is they constantly roll the the egg sack so the eggs are constantly moving around not sticking to each other not settling on each other the moms good moms will do a lot of the work now what ends up happening is you hear people pulling the sacks. Now, the reason they do this is some moms, and it depends, again, this is where you want to look up the different species because some are more likely to do this do this than others. Some moms will end up eating the sack. I've had heard of situations where the moms take the sack and it, for some reason either consume it, which can mean it was a bad sack in some instances. In some instances, it's a good sack and they basically scrunch it all up and eat it like they would a prey item. They got their little burrito there, so they eat it all. In other instances, one of the issues they have is they will drop it in a water dish and leave 
leave it there and discard it. And I've heard of some cases where the one they discarded was actually not a good sack. It was kind of them dumping it. They, spiders seem to use their water dishes as like a dumping ground. Like I got a funny feeling in the wild, any spot with water or running water, they can put it in there and it gets washed away. It's like the garbage. But in some instances, they drop it in there and it's a bad sack. In other instances, I've read cases where it was a good sack and it ends up drowning all the spiderlings. So what happens is depending on the female, depending on the mother, depending on how much of a chance you want to take, leaving it with the mother can put the slings in jeopardy. So what will happen is some keepers will decide to remove the sack, pull it away from the mother, which be careful doing this. Obviously, the mother is going to want to hold on to it. She's going to be gripping the sack. The best way to do it is kind of pry it. You carefully grab a pair of long tongs or tweezers, get a hold of the edge of the sack, not the sack. Like if you grab the whole sack, you're going to crush a lot of babies. The edge of the sack Use a paintbrush, a large paintbrush handle to kind of peel the mom's legs back and pull it out. It can be tricky because they are not going to want to let go of the sack, but I have found that once you get it away from them, they tend to settle down. They're not happy about it for a little bit, but... Again, it comes down to if you're asking yourself whether to pull the sack or whether not to, look up the species reports and see if people have had luck leaving them with them. I left the sack with my Carabina Versicolor, and she was a fantastic mother. She rolled that sack all all day long. She was in a different spot when I'd come in there and look on her and check on her. She was moving the sack around. Then when it got closer to them actually hatching, she basically webbed up, the kind of like the way they web up when they're going to molt. She webbed herself up a, a big cocoon, and she kind of stayed in there, but she kept rolling the sack beneath her the entire time. And then finally, little by little, they open it up and the little babies come out. So if you leave the babies with mom, it can be easier because you don't have to take care of them. If you pull the babies out, what you're looking to do is pull them out when they're what's called eggs with legs. And then you're going to put them in kind of a homemade incubator. Now, the trick with this is you want temperatures in the high 70s to low 80s. You don't want to... I've heard people trying to like hook up heat mats or heat lights or, or, you know, heating lights to kind of heat them up. Try to find a warm corner of your house. They, you can, I've heard of people using the reptile incubators you can use. They're made for reptile eggs. You can use them for spider eggs or spider eggs with legs. If you, you know, want to spend the money, I have not done that. What I do is I have a corner of the room that is usually much warmer, like in the high 70s to 80s, and I keep them there. As far as making an incubator or making you know a place to keep the eggs with legs, what I used last, I've tried both these methods. One of them is where you take a little Sterilite container, and I believe Rob C., of YouTube fame, YouTube fame, one of the original YouTubers had a tutorial where you take it and you cut a hole in the top, you leave like the ring of the cover, and then you take a, you fill it halfway with water, and then you take women's stockings, or I believe it was like leggings, and you cut them up, cut a leg off, and you pull the leg over top of it. And then you take the ring and put it back over so it holds over top of the leggings. And again, this is something that would be better. If you look it up, you'll find how to do it. And basically, it makes an area where the moisture from beneath can evaporate up. You put the eggs with legs, you take them, you open up the sack, you pour them out on that. And then you put this inside of a larger container so that it's obviously covered. And this allows the humidity, you know, it keeps them moist. That air, that water, as it evaporates up, it goes through those that legging material and keeps the eggs with legs moist until they can develop into first in-star slings. So that's one way to do it. This, I tried that once before. And again, I think I just had a bad sack. I pulled the sack from her and part of it was moldy and rotten. I thought I had some good eggs and one by one, they all died off. So that one didn't work as well. The next time I did it, when I had the Hapo 
example of a species Columbia large sacks, what I did was took 16 ounce deli cups and basically put coffee filters in them and then put the eggs with legs in those. I spread them out so they weren't all stuck to each other and then basically had a larger container with some ventilation holes with a lot of moist paper towel on the bottom, a good thick layer of moist paper towel so I could pour water in, moisten the paper towel, put this these two deli cups inside on that and then put the cover on. And this would keep the moisture level in up inside there, would, you know, keep the air from drying out too much. And that worked pretty well for me. And once they all started hatching and climbing out, I removed the moist paper towel, put some drier paper towel in there, and then just kept the babies in there for a little while. So again, the stages that you want to look out for, four to six weeks, you get your egg sac, then you get your eggs with legs. Once the eggs with legs, and eggs with legs, if you look at them, it's exactly what it sounds like. They look like little yellowish eggs with the little legs poking out. It's very easy to recognize. Then the next step would be first instar. This is when they actually lo- start looking like little spiders. Now, a big thing that I, and I thought I had done my research, and when I had my first Hopalopus species, Columbia larges, I was waiting desperately for them to go from eggs to le- from eggs with legs to the first instar. Well, they turned in the first instar. I was all excited. I'm like, yes, this is happening. It's time to feed them. So I started, you know, basically getting ready to feed them. It's important to note that many species will not eat or do not need to eat as first instar. So what'll happen is people will get the, you know, they'll get the eggs with legs. They get first instar. They start freaking out. They're like, oh gosh, I got to start feeding these guys. A lot of folks keep them together. This is not the point where they separate them. They keep them together during this period. If there is, for the species that eat, some of them will cannibalize the weaker slings that are in there. And that's kind of nature taking its course. That's okay. It gets rid of the ones that probably wouldn't survive to begin with. But a lot of them, like my Hapalopus species, Columbia larges, did not eat a single thing during this period. So save yourself the energy of separating them at this point, like I erroneously did, because I had separated them out, went to feed them. And then luckily somebody told me, hey, by the way, they're probably not going to eat at that point. And they did not. So that's something to know. So you go from eggs with legs to first instar, probably not going to eat. Second instar is when you will have the big quintessential spiderling on your hands. It's it's formed. It's ready. They're a lot more lively and active. This is where some cannibalism will start. They're obviously ready to eat and they're ready to be separated. So at this point, this is where if you're looking to separate them out and to sell them off, second instar is what you're looking at for most species. I do believe there are a couple species that actually have an extra instar in there. I I have in my notes, I think P. Metallica might have been one of them. I could be wrong about that one. And G. Rosea is the one I think remember there being like an extra instar in there where they don't eat. There's some weirdness there that they actually have a, an extra extra molt in there. So be aware, again, this comes down to being, you know, doing your homework, doing your due diligence and looking up the, you know, what to expect before you get going. Don't do what I did with the Hapalopus. I, I don't know how I missed it with the first instars part. I think part of it was I was just so excited to get these guys bred that I kind of jumped the gun a little bit and didn't look at my notes. But be aware that some species will have that extra instar. And just again, if you've done your homework, you'll be aware of that by reading the breeding reports. So basically, there's what you get. You you pair them four to six weeks later, you get hopefully an egg sac for most species. After that, you're going to get, you know, 23 to 25 days. If you're going to pull them, that's when you're going to pull it. You're going to make your incubator. When you open the sack, be very careful. They are, it's amazing because you think, oh, it's just webbing. It is so strong and is so easy to pull and tear that webbing and have it crunch down on those eggs because it just, 
it's really tough to get into. So make sure you have a pair of really small, sharp scissors so you can cut a little incision. Pour those things out into whatever you're going to use for an incubator. Again, look up incubate, you know, tarantula incubator online, and you'll find a million cool things you can do. Whatever works for you. If the one with the leggings works, please, by all means, use it. You don't have to get crazy unless you're trying to, you you know, one thing I've seen is people have done stuff with the eggs. They actually take the sack out when they're just eggs and try to incubate those. I don't see any point in that. I mean, unless you really have a mother that's been tearing up sacks like right and left, that's difficult because then you have to basically turn the eggs constantly so they don't, you know, settle down and stick. I wouldn't bother with that. In the very least, let the mother keep it until 23, 25 days. Pull the sack. Hopefully you have a nice little batch of eggs with legs. Keep them in those incubators. Once they turn into first instars, again, don't panic about feeding them. Second instars, some people will still keep them together for a little while and encourage a little bit of cannibalism because it will get rid of the weaker spiders. So what you have left are a lot of the healthier spiders. For some species, I will tell you, the Hapalopus species, Columbia large, I had some of them together, the third instars, and they were not cannibalizing at all. There was no cannibalism. So just something to think about. Again, I looked up and some, I talked to some people and they said, yeah, I've kept mine together for quite a while and they did pretty well. I wouldn't call them communal. Don't anybody misunderstand this, but they did seem to tolerate the other slings around without eating them a lot longer than maybe other species would. So that's something you need to kind of look at. I know um, I've seen a Fonapelma, I believe it was Fonapelma calcotas. I went up to Dinkies and Sarah up there had a bunch of them and she had kept them together second instar. And as soon as they hit second instar, it was like Hunger Games. They were eating each other right and left like they were nasty. So be aware. I got a funny feeling it comes down to species that are in places where it's a lot less hospitable and the conditions could be worse are probably going to be more likely and where there's more slings. So if you got, you know, hundreds of slings, they're probably going to be more likely to quickly resort to cannibalism because in the wild, there's going to be a lack of resources. So they're going to be their own resources. You get 500 of them because they're going to munch each other, get a good meal in before they set out into the real world. So that's pretty much what you have to look forward to if you're breeding, the, the kind of general timeline. And again, this is a springboard for anybody interested in breeding. Go from here, find out which species you want to breed, and take it from there. Again, you can save yourself a lot of trouble if you find out you have one of the species that will tolerate being around you know, the other slings for a longer period of time because then you don't have to do the tedious process of separating them out, which... Not only does it take a while to actually separate them out, but it makes the care take twice as long to feed them. Because I will say, with some of my Hapalopa species Columbia larges, what I was able to do is pre-kill. I, I would basically drop in some fruit flies and allow them to kind of hunt as a group. There was a bunch of them in one of the containers. And then little by little started pulling the larger slings out because I figured it was getting to the point where they're going to start predating on the other ones. And it allowed me, you know, a little extra time before I had to have, you know, 300 and something containers. And even at that point, I had larger deli cups that had four, five, six in it that were doing just fine. And I was dropping in at this point, pre-killed works great with slings. I will tell people right off the bat that if you're trying to use the flightless fruit flies for a lot of these guys, it's going to take you twice as long under most circumstances unless you're able to use. I think you can freeze them. I used to put them in a freezer to slow them down and then drop the, them in while they were nice and slow, which makes them easy to manage, but they're really difficult to deal with. Personally, I liked for my slings, I was using mealworms. I would buying the big cases of small mealworms. You can keep them refrigerated, so you can keep them around for a while, and then what you do is cut them into little sections. So you cut the mealworms up. It's gross, I know, but you cut them up into segments and drop a segment in for each of the, the slings so that they can come and scavenge feed on them. And that worked very well for me. And then you just got to make sure you take those out before they, you know, mold because a lot of times the slings are so, depending on the species, the slings are so 
tiny that you're going to find that they're not going to eat the entire piece of mealworm. So what happens is I would, when I was, I would feed them, I would take everybody out, everybody would get a piece of mealworm, spray down a corner, use a pipette to put a little water down the corner on the substrate, close it back up, put it back next day. I'd have to open them all up and take the ones, you know, the, the remains that were left behind so that they wouldn't mold because they will mold rather quickly. Now, as far as what to use for containers for your slings, you're going to want to get some either some of the dram bottles, depending on the size of the slings, and those you want to buy, you know, obviously you're going to have probably upwards of 100 or so, or so, so you want to find from a place or buy from a place that sells them wholesale so you can get them for cheaper, and you do want to get them ahead of time so you can poke all the holes in the lids. The other thing that works great is those two, I think it's like two ounce or 2.2 ounce souffle or deli cups, those little guys, I've used those quite a bit, because what happened was I ended up ordering the dram bottles, and I didn't end up getting as many as I thought I was going to get and I ended up getting a lot more slings than I thought I was going to get and then I was kind of in trouble so we had to run out to Walmart and grab those but those work really well too get them have them all ready ahead of time get used to you know start off with moist substrate and then usually once a week or so you got to moisten it down use the pipettes or you know if you're going to spray just be just realize that you're going to have to kind of soak down a corner and that that spray is probably going to upset your sling but have the containers ready to go also some people find that as far as organizing everything it can be very tricky to go and feed, you know, two, 300 slings, 400 slings. I know we found it kind of difficult. So have containers ahead of time ready that you can stack all of these little sling containers in. So for example, I had these, I believe there were critter keepers, but they were like the breeding box type critter keepers. They were, they had more surface area than they did height. And I had two of those that I bought that I never figured out what to put in them. And what happened was those little deli cups stacked up beautifully inside. They could do them like three deep all the way across it. They fit perfectly. So when you have to go and do your feedings, you do your mass feedings, you just pick up the whole container. You bring the container out, you put it on the table, you flip the lid over. And then as you feed them, you stack the other ones inside the lid so you know which ones you fed because you can often get confused. And then you put them back in the container and put the whole container back. And I believe I, if I remember correctly, I was able to hold 90 in each container. It was like 90 to 100. So that was a good chunk of them. But come up with something ahead of time before your slings, before you find yourself at that point where you have your second in-star slings and they're starting to feed off of each other and you're like, oh gosh, I have to get this done. Have your sling containers ready to go. Have your whatever you're going to put those sling containers in ready to go. Have them moistened. And then it makes it a lot easier than what happened with me where I kind of ended up having to scramble because I had to separate these guys and I wasn't really, I didn't have what I needed. Then you find yourself hopping on Amazon, paying twice as much for things just so you can get the, you know, two-day shipping because you need the stuff now. Prepare ahead of time. I think that's the biggest message of this is preparation. Prepare by doing your homework. Prepare by having things, once you know you have a gravid female, prepare by having things set up ahead of time. Prepare by knowing what you're going to feed them. If you're going to use the fruit flies, I do encourage you to use the method where you put the fruit fly culture in the freezer for a little bit, slow them down, it'll make it easier. But even then, they start waking. By the time you go through... You know, if you're feeding 300 slings, 200 slings, by the time you do the first 50, the flies are already starting to wake up. They're everywhere. So just a heads up on that. I do find that, again, uh, baby crickets work well. I just found with the mealworms, it was nice because you could buy the big, you know, you can go to Peco or any pet store, order them even online, and you can put them in the fridge. So they're, they'll keep. So if you, what I would do is I'd take them out of the fridge before feeding. I'd pour a bunch of them out, start chopping them up. We'd chop them up with a little razor blade ahead of time. It was really gross. And I used one of Billy's... Uh, cutting boards, which she probably wasn't very happy about. And then we'd little by little go through a little pair of tweezers. You drop the, the prey item in, you make sure the corner's moist or some of the substrate's moist, close it up, you keep going. It takes a while, just a heads up. It's, it's, it's a very time-intensive endeavor to care for a lot of baby slings. 
Now, the one thing I didn't cover in this, because most people end up pulling the sack, is if you leave the sack with mom, that's also a possibility. I left the sack with the mom with my Caribbean Versicolor. She was a fantastic mother. I let the babies go through. They went from eggs with legs to first instar to second instar, and that's why I ended up pulling them from mom. And she did an amazing job as a mother. She was, I have video out there of me opening up to take the babies out, and all the babies would basically run underneath her, and she'd try to like huddle over top of them. It was really, it was kind of heartbreaking, honestly, when I had to take them away because she was doing such a great job. But that's something you can also do that make can make your life a little more easy, especially with some species like Monocentropus balfourii, um, Harpactra pulcropes. They're known to be very good mothers. I mean, balfourii, obviously, you can just leave them with the mothers. Uh, NNC, you can leave them with the mothers, both cases indefinitely because they do have those communal um, tendencies with them. But you need to recognize that if you're leaving them with the mom, that's going to cause, you know, later on when you have to wrangle the slings, that's going to cause it to be a little more difficult. So you're going to be, it's ease of care as far as you don't have to pull the sack and worry about the eggs with legs. But know that depending on the enclosure type, it can be a little more difficult to eventually when you want to get rid of the slings and and sell them and and get them out of the enclosure. It's going to be tricky because you have to hunt all them down. They're going to be in the burrows. They're going to be all over the place. You also have to make sure that you spiderling proof whatever enclosure you leave them in. So for example... I have a female M. Balfouri right now that I'm going to pair with one of the males from the communal. This is the one I raised by herself. And I had actually paired her already. She molted out and then the male died. Or I put the male back in the enclosure and didn't feel like pulling them out again. So this will be the second attempt at it. But the enclosure she's in is one of the Jamie's enclosures, which I will probably leave the sack with her. But I'm already looking at the fact that the Jamie's enclosures have the door in the middle. So there's a lot of corners and things that are going to make it difficult for me to get in there and safely get you know a catch cup and get some of these babies out. So give it some forethought. If you leave the babies or the slings with the mom, make sure you have an enclosure that's conducive to doing so. So in my instance, I'm thinking about, I love her in this enclosure, but I'm thinking about putting her in something that's going to allow for a lot more opening in the top so that when eventually it comes time to pull some of these guys out, I can do it. Or if I decide to leave some with her, that it gives more room so that they can go and, and we can have another communal going. Who knows? We'll see where it goes if she you know takes, if the, the breeding takes. But you want to make sure that if you're going to leave them with the mom, you're in a situation or have a situation where it's appropriate. So for example, I left mine with my, my Caribbean Versicolor with the mother there. I thought I had totally sling-proofed the enclosure, but then one day we caught one of the little babies had found a little corner and was kind of climbing out. And that's where it's like, all right, we got to pack these up now. So we pulled them out. So make sure you can leave them with mom, do your homework ahead of time, find out if these moms, the, the, the species that you're currently dealing with is one that's a little more nurturing and that this is a good idea with. If it is, by all means, leave them, watch the mom go. I mean, M. Balfouri, there's a lot of footage out there and a lot of data to show that the moms, if you throw praetums in, the mom will kill the praetums and drop them on the ground so the slings can go all, come out and scavenge feed. So that would be something incredible to catch while you're, you know, getting these babies ready to be separated and sold, allowing the mom to just do what nature intended her to do, feeding them, getting them all healthy and supporting them, their growth until it's time to unfortunately separate them and sell them off. So again, you can leave them with the mom, again, but do your research. Talk to some people that bred them with the Caribbean first car. I talked to people that had bred them before. I said, nope, I just leave them in there. Um, I, I should think I talked to Tanya from Fear Not at one point and said, what do you usually do? And she's like, I'd leave them. The mom's usually really good. And we did. It works great. Just be aware. One thing I forgot to mention earlier, I kind of touched upon it. The water dishes. Uh, one of the big issues that they can have is if you have an open water dish, there's been instances where the mom is basically dunked, and sometimes by accident. Sometimes they're rolling the, if you watch them, they roll these things all around, and sometimes they end up in the water dishes, and that could, if you get a moldy sack, that's it. You're probably going to end up with a bunch of dead eggs. 
So be careful if you have a water dish in your enclosure. I know a lot of breeders that will pull water dishes out. They'd rather just moisten the substrate in an area. At that point, there's a risk of the egg sac ending up in the water dish soaked and ruining the egg sac. So that's something to be very careful of. I know I have my Ophilpinus right now, who I'm hoping has been, you know, she's been paired. I'm hoping she's been bred. And I did, I keep a little shallow, one of those little pods with some water in it just in case. But I took out the bigger water dish because I didn't want a potential sack to end up in it. So just something to be aware of as far as if you do keep them with the mothers, you know, the sack with the mothers for a while, you may want to consider, you know, moving the water dish or getting it out of there completely. So that should about, you know, I'm hoping this is enough information to get people started and give them, it's more of an overview of what to expect with the breeding. It is not a quote unquote breeding tutorial or a, you know, a fully developed FAQ because you really can't do it so much with breeding because it depends on the species. So if this is something that you're planning on doing, hopefully this gives you an idea of what to expect. You know, I've labeled some of the pitfalls I went through, like trying to feed them too early, uh, recognizing that in some instances you can actually keep them together longer that makes your life a lot easier you can feed them in mass you know drop in some pre-killed items i did this with my hopalopus species columbia larges i was dropping in first it was the fruit flies and i got sick of the fruit flies they were ridiculous so i started dropping in pre-killed roaches tearing them apart and some of them were group feeding on those there's a lot of things you can do to make it easier on yourself as far as you know, how much work it's going to entail once you're separated, you've separated all the slings and you're trying to care for them. That's when it becomes very time intensive. So you need to be aware of that. And again, you want to make sure if you get a sack and you think you're going to have a healthy sack that you know what you're going to do with the slings. Try not to wait to, all right, we got, you know, 250 babies here. Now let me go contact people. Try to, you know, shoot some things out ahead of time. Again, you don't want to, you know, the old proverb, don't count your chickens before you ha- they hatch. Don't count your spiderlings before they hatch. But, you know, shooting a thing out and saying, hey, would you be interested? Do you buy wholesale? Getting an idea for who's out there and who might be interested ahead of time might be a, a good place to start. Some people might not answer right away because I'm sure they get a lot of, again, I'm sure these dealers get a lot of people asking. I know I've had people tell me oh, these huge ambitious breeding projects they're going to do and would you help me find a place for them afterwards and I never hear from them again so I don't know if they went through or whatnot. But doing the research ahead of time, having notes, knowing what to expect, write down, you know, I would go through what I do is I look at when I'm looking at breeding a species, I go through, I look at the breeding reports, I write down when they bred, I figure out the time between when they bred, when I expect a sack, when they pulled the sack, how many days am I looking at, and then how many days am I looking at as far as getting the first and second instar to kind of get an idea. You can usually look at a lot of different breeding reports and come up with a general idea ballpark of what you're looking at as far as times. And that can take a lot of the stress off that you're sitting there staring at a big fat mother spider wondering when are you going to drop this thing. It can help you kind of relax a little bit, just make sure you know, don't let the enclosures dry out. That's a big one for some of these species that, you know, a moisture dependent species, don't let it dry out. Make sure though that you're careful not leaving huge puddles of water in there that if she lays an egg sac, she can roll the egg sac in and end up, you know, you know, either drowning the babies or getting it wet to the point where it starts to mold. And then just be prepared for what to expect as far as the work. I mean, I, again, it's I think for a lot of us, it's incredibly rewarding, but I wouldn't jump into the deep end. Like I would try it with a species that you know is easier to breed at first, but maybe doesn't produce thousands of babies. So Hopalobus species Columbia larges, I will tell you, that was a great one to start with because the pairing went very easily. The, the, everything kind of went exactly according to plan with the exception of the fact that I ended up with almost 400 babies. That was 
a bit of a shocker. I was expecting more around, you know, max 90. We actually, when we were doing our research of what the breed, Billy and I actually looked at, like we wanted one that didn't have as many babies and whoops, we end up with quite a few, but do your research ahead of time, be prepared for it. And again, use this podcast as a springboard, just a starting point. Hopefully I've given you enough tips to go through that you can kind of put together a little, you know, form right now, things you want to look at if you're trying to breed. And I hope you guys find it helpful. And again, as I do more breeding projects, I'll be able to update on some of the information. I like sharing the information, what I've seen as far as when I breed my guys. So I will continue to share that information. So when people are looking to breed, you know, any of the species I bred before, they can obviously hear about my experiences with them. All right. So when I started doing this one, I was expecting it to be about a half hour long because I was going to try to keep everything general. But once again, I'm long winded. So it ended up being almost an hour. But hey, whatever. We've, we've I purchased more time on this plan because I've been trying to do longer ones lately and people seem to love them. I was actually trying to keep them at a half hour before because I figured most people's attention span, they wouldn't want to listen that long. But it seems like the longer they get, the happier people are with it, which is great. So as long as you don't mind my long winded podcast, we're all we're all in good shape. So that will do it for this one. Again, I hope this, you know, I I want to inspire people to breed because I do think we need much more captive breeding in the United States. Absolutely, 100%. We need more people breeding these and strategically breeding ones that we're not able to get anymore. Some of these Brazilian species... Unless something changes, they're going to be tough to come by. So those of you with big, fat Acanthoscuria geniculata females, supposedly they can be pretty nasty toward the males, but let's get moving on that. Let's get some of those babies out there. I I need babies because I don't have this species anymore. My male went off the breed, and that's been it. So let's get captive breeding going, but please be aware of what you're in for. I think overall it's incredibly rewarding, but it is time intensive. It can be stressful and it can be, you know, especially stressful when you have a bunch of these babies and suddenly realize, I don't know what to do with them all. And they're taking up all your time. So just be aware of that. But for those of you, you know, I've talked to some buddies of mine that have been doing a lot of breeding lately and they love it and they've got the time for it. And it's just, it's a fantastic thing to know that you were actually responsible for producing some some of these animals that we all love and enjoy. So that will do it for this one. As always, you can check me out on YouTube. Uh, Facebook is usually where I throw these up that we can comment on them. And again, I've been a little, little behind on the Facebook stuff because work has been kicking my butt lately. But hopefully I'll be able to keep up with those more as you know things calm down a bit. And I guess that does it for this one. So I will catch you guys all next time.